9, 12, 10, 28, 2, 23. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I am David Rothkopf and I am here in our uh, secret silo studios in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of Snark um, with uh, Ian, uh, our engineer, uh, soon to be joined, I, I will say, and you can expect howls when it happens by the Deep State dog who's <laughs> Going to come and join the first uh, studio podcast that he's involved with. Uh, and uh, in a very exciting development, Corey, who's been uh, traveling, we haven't had her with, is with us. And where are you, Corey? I am in Canberra, Australia. Uh, nice. And uh, are they treating you well down under? Yes. I was here to give an International Women's Day talk and to do some work with folks um from the Office of Net Assessment here, and I snuck away and went hiking in Tasmania over the weekend. Oh, that sounds good. By the way, that sound you just heard is Mika Oyang of uh, the Third Way, who runs their <laughs> national security program. Have you ever been to Tasmania, Mika? I have not. The closest I've been is New Zealand. Um, well, that's kind of vaguely similar. Did you see anything interesting in Tasmania? I mean, I've always wanted to go there because it sounds so beautiful to me. It Was is it? so beautiful. Yeah, my friends and I went on a long hike around part of the coastline, and we saw this crazy animal that Australians have a name for, but because it's 5.30 in the morning here, I can't quite remember it. But it's like a mix between an anteater, and a porcupine. Yeah. Interesting. An anteater and a porcupine. Yeah. Um, it's the craziest looking thing. Uh, well, you know. And it, I know deep state nerds are going to avalanche me with Twitter, um, with tweets that tell me what the name of it is. So thank you in advance, deep state nerds. Yeah. And then they'll also, you know, make up a, a internet account for Corey's, you know, <laughs> pangolin or whatever it is. Um, I, you know, as those kind of, those kind of things happen. Um, uh, well, that's good because, you know, in Australia, almost everything there will actually kill you. Um, <laughs> you know, but, Bugs. It's really true. Snakes. Notes from a sunburned country. Yeah. Uh, Bill Bryson's terrific book about Australia has that as the entire theme. The number of ways you can, the number of things on the continent of Australia that will kill you. Yeah, no, it's true. Starting with beer, but going from there, it gets even more and more dangerous. Um, well, look, let's talk um, about some of the things that are going on in the world. Uh, and Corey, even though you are in Canberra, well, let's start with something that has a little bit 
uh, more to do with Europe, although it would presumably uh, have to do uh, also with Australia. And that is the president's um, entrepreneurial idea of <laughs> I can't even finish the question before getting the, the sigh of discontent. Uh, uh, the president's idea of essentially requiring uh, uh, allies to pay uh, cost plus 50 percent to have our troops stationed there. Yeah, this is, you know, um, I try and make a list of the biggest mistakes the Trump administration is making and the ones hardest to reverse. There's enormous overlap in those two lists. But what is at the top of both of those lists is the fundamental misconception of President Trump and the people around him that America's allies are somehow... Um, a disadvantage to us uh, rather than the greatest strategic advantage the United States has, even if you include two oceans as borders. Um, what they don't understand is that uh, they ask the wrong question. So the question they ask is, do allies pay enough? And of course, the answer is no. But the question they should ask is, has any dominant power in history ever been able to structure an international order where its potential challengers are more likely to opt into assisting it than to resist it, its policies to balance against its power? The international order the United States built after 1945 gives uh, get provides rules that more or less everybody behaves by. The U.S. sometimes, as Patrick Porter points out, takes the vigilante privilege of breaking the rules to compel other people to abide by the rules. But for the most part, this is a great system because weak states, weak, states weaker than the United States, have an incentive to opt in voluntarily to the system because they get a better deal there than they ha would in their expectation under other systems. President Trump turning that into a transactional protection racket where we intimidate allies with the threat of abandonment into participating um, makes, makes no sense for weak states. They are gonna find a system that is more to their advantage. So if you think about the way the United States, not just under President Trump, but uh, this has been a 20-year congressional campaign to use the exorbitant privilege of the dollar as the pre preeminent holding currency to apply extraterritorial sanctions. That is, we, can, we will punish companies uh, in Germany, for example, for doing business with Iran as a way to punish Iran. And what you see now is the Chinese are trying to set up a petro-yuan currency to skirt the dollar zone. The Europeans even are trying to set up a payments clearing system that doesn't involve the dollar. We are destroying our own uh, predominance by this kind of behavior. And it's true that President Trump's not the first American president to gnash his teeth about allies not doing more.
but he's the first one to actively put uh, explosive charges under the temple of the post-war international order and threaten to kill us all by blowing it up. Yep, which, of course, could be his objective. By the way, I didn't introduce at the beginning Evelyn Farkas, who's also on the line someplace. Yay, Evelyn! And uh, you are there, right, Evelyn? I've heard rumors. I am, yay, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, so Evelyn is here with Mika and Corey, and we're just going through an initial question, Evelyn, about... um, president's ideas uh, to, uh, to sort of charge cost plus for our troops. And, and think about that. And Mika, maybe you can offer your thoughts on it first. Yeah, I'm, I think that what you're seeing is not just this, right, which the president ran on, on burden sharing, which, look, Republicans and Democrats alike have often said, look, our European allies need to pay more towards collective defense in Europe because it's a threat that we all share. But it's you know, after the 2016 elections and the resurgent Russia, after what they did in 2014 in Ukraine, I think that people realize that Russia is much more of a threat to our European allies, those who share our values than we had previously thought. I, I've said this before. I personally feel like I owe Mitt Romney a little bit of an apology for making fun of him for calling Russia our number one geopolitical foe when he ran, ran in 2012. I think um, most of us do. Yeah. On this side of the aisle. Corey, yeah. Corey probably is absolved. Of- exactly. <laughs> no, thank but, you. you know, you saw Corey them- is automatically absolved of all wrongdoing <laughs> on this. Yeah. It's true. You know, look, you see them cutting the European uh, assurance initiative. You see tremendous cuts to the State Department. All the tools that we use to keep our allies on our side, to persuade them to continue to reach out and show them that we share values. All of those things are going away. So you kind of wonder what's Secretary Pompeo has bought for all his attempts to bring swagger back to the State Department when you see all of these reductions in programs that are really necessary to make sure that, as Corey says, our allies are willingly on our side. And and I think Trump doesn't realize when they're actually on your side, they go out of their way to act on our behalf in fora and places where we don't necessarily, where we're not necessarily there as we see our diplomats being pulled back. I think that's a real challenge. Europeans are still carrying on uh, holding up the torch for democracy and human rights, um, for liberal values in a lot of international fora where the U.S. just isn't present anymore and the Russians are really trying to take over. We see this in cyber diplomacy and counterterrorism and places like that. And, you know, Trump is making it much more difficult for the U.S. to engage in those spaces where we need to. Um, Yeah, by the way, the topic that you mentioned, just to get everybody teed up about the State Department budget cut, is the one that I was going to go to on my next question. So uh, let's let's get Evelyn's take on this uh, rent an army idea, and then we'll move on to that one. Well, I mean, look, I think it's... (laughs) I I understand, as Mika said, you know, we all understand that the allies need to do more to share the burden, especially in the light of these greater challenges today that require greater resources, you know, more money to go into countering uh, an aggressive and militarily resurgent Russia and an increasingly capable Chinese military. So to deter those countries, it's going to cost more money and our allies need to be involved. But you know, as always, the president's style is what is so obnoxious and also his inability to 
actually give to acknowledge the fact that the United States is a global power. So if you go to the Europeans and you and you make claims about how much they owe us, you need to take into consideration that number one, the U.S. is putting more in because we're using Europe to conduct operations from Europe. Second, our allies also, we need to give credit for things that they're doing in other parts of the world, although, of course, as as always, we are contributing more, but it's in our national security interest. And then third, I just think it's obnoxious to do in light of the fact that he just, you know, he, I mean, he, he does, his timing is always so horrible. In the, in the Asian context, you know, he just renegotiated, put all this pressure on the South Korean government while we're trying to actually come up with an, you know, some kind of new agreement with North Korea, the timing was pretty horrendous for him to be, you know, hectoring the South Korean government. We have enough problems right now staying on the same page with them and then also putting up a, well, putting up essentially, in other words, putting up a united front against North Korea. So um, I, 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 I have problems with it, not in principle per se, but more in the execution. Um, okay. Well, Mika touched upon something, Corey, that uh, uh, is related to this, and that is that the White House has submitted its budget. And of course, its budget is a, you know, a document of fiction with the likelihood of being adopted into law roughly akin to the latest comic book that you've read. But but having, you know, having said that, um, it does reveal something about what the president or whoever in the White House does these things, because we're pretty sure the president doesn't, is thinking. And one of the things they seem to be thinking is that the State Department in the midst of this complicated world deserves to have a 23 percent budget cut. Now, this sort of runs contrary to Secretary Pompeo's plans to restore the swagger to the State Department. And I was just wondering what your thoughts were on this. Uh, so I have several thoughts about this. Uh, the first, uh, Emma Ashford has already put up on Twitter, which is, this isn't a budget cut, it's a budget massacre. Uh, the second is that, you know, Secretary Pompeo um by agreeing to a 23% cut in the State Department's budget is ensuring that he has no credibility within his department. So if he expects great things of the people of the State Department and they're gonna rally around his leadership because he's got a hashtag on Twitter that says swagger, he is delusional. Um, but third, it also tells me how little influence Secretary Pompeo must have with the White House that he couldn't um, make a case for his budget. Um, so, so the State Department piece of it makes me grateful that this budget is dead on arrival and will be what the White House has done is ensure that it is irrelevant to the budget process because the Congress is never going to use this as the basis for it. I want to say a couple of assiduous words about the defense budget uh, before handing over to the rest of you for your reactions. Uh, because the defense budget is every bit as bad as the State Department budget, it just in the opposite direction. So, um, so the defense budget increases OCO, which is the category of funding for contingency operations, 
that doesn't, it wasn't limited by the sequestration or by the budget ceilings that the Budget Control Act. This goes straight on to the deficit. So uh, Congress has a separate category for contingency operations in order that they can turn wars on and off. Um, and here's what President Trump, uh, he campaigned on eliminating this. Every American president complains. Uh, president Obama complained. This is a terrible way to do business. Uh, but President Trump has done something unprecedented, which is uh, increase at a time we are reducing troops in Syria, in Afghanistan, in Iraq. He ballooned the OCO account up to $165 billion. Only 20 of it, $20 billion of that, according to Todd Harrison, one of the best budget analysts around, only 20 billion of it is actually for contingency operations. 10 billion of it, 9 billion of it. So almost half of what is being asked for in the in the request for the wars is being asked for to build the wall. Um, so the president is putting wall building money into the defense budget where it doesn't belong. Uh, he's putting uh, hurricane security in, and it's only for two years, which is terrible budgeting for the defense department. It's gonna, anyway, I will stop raving just to say the State Department 23% cut isn't even the worst thing that's in the Trump administration budget. The way that they are ramping up contingency funding to pay for non-defense things is just going to antagonize Congress. The craziest, so high on my list of bad things, the Trump, bad decisions the Trump administration did, does, is they don't appear to ever think they need to work with the Congress. And mostly the president's power comes from working with the Congress. Um, you know, Mika, <laughs> what this means is, and again, let's just reiterate, this budget is going to end up like holding up a short table leg or something somewhere in the Congress because Nancy Pelosi is going to immediately I mean I'm sure she won't even open it you know but but um, but 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 what the president I, my bet is she complete I'm sorry to interrupt yeah, you a bit, but my bet is that she pays no attention to it at all yeah um, well let's just let's just give her something to think about here uh, Mika um, this budget calls for 19 or 20 around 19 times the money spent on defense as spent on diplomacy and aid added up. Um, so what do we think of that? Um, what's it, Mullen, or I forget who used to say, how many diplomats do I need to, to stop getting into a war, right? As opposed to how much of a defense bit budget do I need to right, win two major, major regional contingencies? I think that there's a real question here about where our priorities are and having diplomats is about avoiding that conflict in the first place, right? For example, if we can keep talking in North Korea, then you don't have to saber rattle. But this administration has left many, many positions vacant in dealing with North Korea so that they cannot reach staff level agreement before the president 
burns three days flying across the world to hear a deal that he could have heard via his aides without even leaving the Oval Office, right? So there are there are real world consequences to not having the people and the expertise in place, to being present at those international fora. And so if you're if you are taking away your ability to resolve things diplomatically, then really all you are left with is an option for war because then there's no other way to change your adversary's calculus. You either live with what they've decided or you use force to try and change that. And neither of those are two good options, right? There's no attempt to reason with people, to persuade them, to use education or aid dollars to help resolve some of their problems. There are not enough carrots on the table and only one giant stick. But then on the other, another piece of this that I find really disturbing and Corey talked about this with the deficit spending, is that one of the big categories we see increasing in this budget is the amount of money that we're going to have to pay in debt service. That's just the interest on the national debt. And what that does is that is a huge proportion of the federal budget, and it leaves the fiscal outlook for our country in the control of the nation's creditors. Because if interest rates go up, and we can't control that, then what we will see is our creditors forcing us to pay more in debt service to the point where it will dwarf how much we are spending on the military. It could dwarf what we are spending on essential safety net programs like Medicare and Medicaid. And this budget, as proposed by the president, would increase the amount of debt that the United States has. And Donald Trump is somebody who has, you know, been through bankruptcy many, many times. And it's one thing when it's a real estate empire, and it's a totally different thing when you're talking about a nation and its credit. And, you know, debt service is not something that helps anyone. It doesn't build a wall. It doesn't feed families. It doesn't protect the nation. It doesn't put, you know, diplomats in our allied capitals. It doesn't do any of the things that we actually need the federal government to be doing. Regardless of whether or not you agree with Trump's priorities, he's actually hurting the things that he also says he cares about. What well kind said, of crazy? Yeah. Re- what kind of crazy Republican talk is that? <laughs> you know, you're a Democrat. Spend. <laughs> Life is short. Wonky, Live it up. Wonky. No, this is <laughs> the worst thing. Democrats have become the party of fiscal responsibility, and it's—I'm <laughs> proud of them, but it's an arrow in my Republican heart. Oh. I mean, it's been happening since '92, Corey. Yeah, no, that's true. Well, and when, that's a little much, Mika. Republicans <laughs> in Congress pushed it that way. But Republicans in Congress have completely abandoned the notion that the nation's fiscal health matters. And it's an extraordinary disgrace. And, 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 and the fact that they have done so has really reverberated. I mean, I had a conversation on the phone the other day. This is obviously just anecdotal, but you know, someone who considers themselves a conservative, but said, well, I support Trump's policies. And I said, but how can you support because, because this person's business is doing very well and I, and the economy is doing well, they think. And I said, but what about the deficit? And they said, oh, it doesn't matter. Remember how alarmed they were several years ago about the deficit being whatever, you know, she gave me the number. I mean, it's really disturbing when our political leadership 
essentially misleads the American people, brushes aside a serious long-term issue. Because, of course, I pointed out to my friend, it's not about you and how well you're doing. It's about the country. And, oh, by the way, your children and grandchildren. It just allows also then Americans writ large who are the ones voting to be misled into thinking this is okay. But I wanted to make a little point, if I could, just to bolster and, and maybe add a little texture to what Corey said about the defense budget, because I'm also alarmed by what's happened as somebody who worked seven years for the Senate Armed Services Committee. You know, the that that overseas contingency operation fund, that was for fi- funding wars. And by the way, you know, that was supposed to come up in an emergency. <laughs> so so it wasn't supposed to be a regular course of business. And as Corey properly pointed out, every, you know, normal politician would rail against it. Now the president is using it. Essentially, he's saying, I'm going to create as much money that I can do whatever I want with as I can get away with. And I uh, essentially agree with you guys that Congress will push back, but it's disturbing. There are other areas where it's disturbing, and I hope they push back. It's great that research and development is up for a few important things, in my estimation, hypersonic weapons and um, artificial intelligence, but it's only up again for a year or two, um, which isn't very sustainable for the companies that the Defense Department contracts with. I mean, you want to know that you're going to be working on something longer than uh, a year or two. Um, Second, there's the issue, getting back to, I think, what Mika said about the the European Defense Initiative. I I believe I was on a, actually um, on this very podcast with Corey, where we were applauding the Trump administration for putting more money into this initiative. And now the Trump administration is reversing course. And by the way, putting more money in, but still not getting up to what we could do in in an ideal world. So we still are kind of satisficing, I think, for a large part when it comes to helping the Ukrainians with their defense, which is part of EDI, and then also working with our allies on deterrence. There's still more that we could do if we had more funding. Nevertheless, given current realities, I think most of us were fine with what the Trump administration had budgeted thus far. But this cut is going to hurt. We just had the head of the U.S. European Command, General Scaparotti, Uh, say publicly that he believes the Ukrainians need more to deter the Russians. That's obvious. Hello. Just a couple months ago, the Ukrainians seized three ships and 23 Ukrainian sailors, which they have yet to return to the government of Ukraine. So, um, you know, clearly the Ukrainians are are not deterring the Russians. And Russia is only going to become more dangerous as an adversary as they figure out and see that the Trump administration may not be there forever. And as they try to get away with as much as possible, still their policy, under under the level of all out Article 5 war. So I just kind of wanted to make those other little, um, add those little points. I wanted to also build on something that Evelyn said about mission, because I think that one of the things that this budget really demonstrates is that the Trump administration is no longer ensuring that the budget follows the mission. The president of the United States has stated in various YouTube videos and other fora that he wants to wind down the mission in Syria and get the U.S. out of Afghanistan. As the two major wars that the country is still involved in come down, the budget should come down. Budget should follow mission. And instead, what we see is a budget increase as the mission is going away. And so it makes no sense from that perspective, right? You cannot continue to justify funding on a wartime basis if you are no longer engaged in 
wartime activities. And so I think that's a real challenge here that you should see Congress looking into because they have become increasingly skeptical of the administration's military missions abroad. You saw that in their votes on this engagement on the civil war in Yemen and Saudi Arabia. You know, the war in Afghanistan you can blame both parties and previous administrations for the fact that we have not made as much progress there as we would like, but this president has been very clear that he wants to get out. And so if we're wrapping that up, then the budget should reflect the kinds of activities that would allow you to withdraw from that country. And you should see a long-term decrease. And we don't see that in this budget. So, Corey, I'm from New Jersey. And so everything in Washington <laughs> seems very complicated to me and it gives me a headache. And hey. I'd like I'd like you to... Yeah, well, for me. <laughs> from the tri-state Let, area, I don't know. I'm taking a little bit of offense. Okay, well, the, you know, this is New Jersey. I thought you were taking offense because you were giving him a headache. Yeah, the, no, no. It's, and so, <laughs> they don't even let you pump your own gas in New Jersey. I know, it's weird. It's weird. <laughs> the whole thing is weird. But having said that, he said he was going to get rid of the budget um, uh, deficit, and, and it looks like it's, you know, heading um, up through all of I this. I he said he would do it in two or three years. Yeah, he? yeah, it said he'd and get rid of... this th- budget magically uh, is supposed to do it by 2023 or something. Yeah, with growth at 3% a year, which is not going to happen, and a whole bunch of other things which are not going to happen. Um, but, you know, you've got, you know, like trillions of dollars out there that we don't have. So here's the question. Where does that money come from? I'm just, I mean, if we don't have it, how do we spend it, Corey? (laughs) Uh, Well, that would be a question you could ask every year because we have been spending money we don't have for a very long time. Well, well, whose money is it? It is our children and our grandchildren's money. Well, yes, in the fu- in the future, in this one is respect, but isn't it? Are you getting at China? I was this heading to China. Intergenerational theft. Actually, um, I it I spent a little time looking into the likelihood that foreign governments buying America's debt could create a run on the dollar, uh, and you need buyers to be able to sell uh, treasury bonds. But the good news is that it's not that big a risk that you would have a foreign run. First, because it's hard to do in real time. Second, because uh, it is, it would be so if you cannot have sellers at a higher price than you bought the debt at, you're actually using a financial weapon against yourself as well as against the United States. But the third reason is that an enormous amount of America's debt is actually held by Americans, by uh, retirement funds, by state pension funds, that kind of thing. So it's not as big a risk as I had initially imagined that foreign holdings could compel Uh, capitulation by the United States on specific policies. But I do think um, there's an enormous risk, as Mika pointed out, with interest rates. Because as interest rates go up, we are very quickly going to see the payment on the interest surpass what we spend uh, for the Pentagon and associated intelligence departments. And what we are getting for it is not the defeat of Imperial Japan and Nazi Germany during World War II. It's 
uh, tax cuts for the wealthiest is what we are buying with a lot of the money that we are um, with a lot of money that we are profligately spending in our federal budget. If I were a betting woman, and I am, uh, I will bet that the Speaker of the House ignores this budget completely and restores the 50% of the federal budget can go to defend, 50% um, of spending will go to national security priorities, 50% will go to domestic priorities. The, the, when Republicans had uh, control of the budget process in Congress, they were able to eliminate the 50-50 split. And I was astonished that they were able to get it done even for a small period. I bet we go back to a 50-50 split. And that is not unreasonable when the country is as safe as we are. Uh, yeah, but let me, you know, just sort of pick up this this other point, Mika and then Evelyn, and that is that quite apart from the merits of spending X dollars on defense or X dollars on diplomacy or X dollars on aid and the potential implications of that for um, foreign policy and national security, um, borrowing a lot of money makes you dependent on others. Whether they can cause a run on the dollar is one thing, but they can certainly, uh, as indicated, put pressure on the United States. And in certain moments during elections and other times, uh, even the threat of selling things off could have a negative effect on the economy, which has a political consequence. Uh, and at the same time, when you are borrowing all of this money, you have to cut someplace. And this budget contains massive Medicare uh, and other uh, Health care cuts, which the president promised that he would not make. Um, in other words, you know, and and raising uh, growing interest obligations have the same effect. We have less money to spend on the things that make us strong. So we're more vulnerable. We have less on the things that make us strong. Uh, and I was wondering if you want to talk about that, Mika. Yeah, I mean, I think that we have some real systemic weakness coming in the United States. And I think that it's a real challenge because our self-conception of the United States is sort of stuck in the you know 1950s to 1980s range where the United States was the strongest global competitor, where we didn't have these huge fiscal obligations, where the other players around the world were still recovering from World War II, so they weren't able to compete globally. And in having our self-conception of the United States stuck in that place, we are ignoring fiscal realities that are happening elsewhere. That when you look at the cuts to things like Medicare and Medicaid, we're talking about cuts to the most vulnerable. This is bad on the Medicaid front as we've hollowed out the middle class and there are far more people in lower income categories than we've had previously. And as the baby boom generation starts to age, we have far more people in the Medicare generation. Those of us poor Gen Xers who are working our asses off to try and make sure that those obligations are paid, right, are doubtful that those social safety programs will be around when we have need of them. Um, when you look at those who are working in the economy, it's probably not as many as we would like. And so there's some real structural weaknesses in the U.S. economy. At the same time, when you look across at China, they have the potential to be two or three times the size of our economy as they grow, given their population size and their expectations. And so the 
the weight that the U.S. has thrown around globally, not just on having the largest military in the world, but also being the largest market and the largest economic power, those things are starting to go away. And so if we don't change our self-conception as the biggest, baddest guy on the block who can do what they want and everyone follows along, but have to think more carefully about what other countries want and what their security needs are and what their economic needs are, we're not going to be able to navigate this because, as I said earlier, the other countries really have a vote. And as Corey pointed out, these systems that other countries are building to get around the United States really erodes America's soft power and our ability to impose consequences on things that we don't like. So we're, you know, losing our ability to impose consequences for sanctions because of the way the international financial system is working. We're losing our ability to persuade because we're cutting our own diplomats. We are increasing our defense spending, so all we can do is threaten, but that doesn't gain us additional allies. And we are structurally facing a much weaker U.S. economy over the long run. I'm not encouraged by any of this going forward. And frankly, we are stuck in a a state of denial about how great we are. And I'm I'm really concerned that if the United States doesn't take a much more realistic look at our situation and try and make policies to fix that, we could find ourselves sliding off of our perch really quickly. I have to say, what you said was probably very thoughtful and substantive, but you said the word Gen X, and it just made me feel old, and I just stopped thinking about what you were talking about and started thinking about... We're like the middle generation now as Gen Xers. There's like two other generations behind us. Well, that's fine, but some of us are baby boomers, and we're all going to die soon, and you know, I know, but it's a lot also, of pressure. I, but you know what? I do think that because the baby boomers are in that place where they have less time left on the planet than Thanks. some of the... Thanks. I'm I'm really enjoying this. this Are you enjoying good. this? Are you enjoying yeah, this? Yeah. Um, you know, you, you don't think about long-term consequences, right? It's like the president's oh attitude God. about debt service, where he's like, "Well, I'm not going to be around for any of this like implosion of the American economy. I'm not going to be present by then. So why worry about it?" And you know, for those people who don't who are not saying, hey, I want to leave this world in a better place than I found it. How do I make sure that my children don't suffer under financial burdens and my grandchildren don't suffer under financial burdens? We're not thinking about these things. Okay. First of all, some of us are able to think about the future, okay? It's true. Secondly, secondly Ian- But you're not in power. Ian, please, well, in some ways I am down here in the third sub-basement. I am, Indeed. Ian, order a hundred cheeseburgers. I don't have long. It doesn't matter what I eat. And I'm just, I'm just going to eat cheeseburgers only from now on. Evelyn, I wish the president would do that. I'm yeah, all for natural causes. Yeah, that's, oh, oh man, that's the ones that, you know, I got to tell you, folks, that is a subject that I've heard in conversations in Washington, D.C. with very fancy cabinet level people speculating, ruminating, talking about things about a president. I'm not even going to say it because I've find it so uncomfortable that I've never heard people talk about before. Um, Evelyn, th th this desperately needs to have the conversation uh, changed and shifted back to the hidden risks within um, our budgetary planning. And so I'll just leave you with, you know, any of that. Where, where do you want to go with that? 
any any way to change the subject <laughs> yeah well from you know mortality and oh i ha- we could talk about nancy pelosi inviting Jens stoltenberg to come give it uh, address to the joint session of congress no i thought that was very cool and i also i have to say there is a thing that shows that somebody is a deep state radio regular and they really are comfortable with doing it and that is when they tweet something out during the recording session and I noticed Mika (laughs) that you tweeted that out (laughs) earlier that's how you know this this guest really is mainstream. Yeah, deep you state should, radio. deep state radio. Okay, she's at home. It's a complaint that we are on Twitter while we're recording. She's. Par- I'm not complaining. Get continue, <laughs> and we get to continue to talk about the important subjects we're talking about here, also in our Twitter feed. That you know why we have so many women on deep state radio because women are biologically predisposed to multitasking. Exactly, <laughs> and you know it allows you to communicate. Uh, with both hands. Um, <laughs> Evelyn, did you want to <laughs> well, say anything? I don't, I don't know that we, I, I don't know if we need to belabor the budget point. Cause I think we made a lot of important points and um, we'll be hearing more coming out of Congress, but maybe that, that is the point And that under, and that kind of also links with what the point that Mika just made, because what I found was so interesting just in the last couple of weeks about Nancy Pelosi is not only is she kind of um, taking control. And granted, there have been some blips. I'm sure you guys already discussed some of the blips inside her caucus, um, you know, the issues with, in, with the younger folks kind of taking the microphone and diverting the conversation. However, um, she, Nancy Pelosi has been taking the microphone from the president. So this, this invitation to the Secretary General of NATO is clearly something that's designed to say, first of all, I'm bringing someone who supports our vision, our mainstream vision, by the way, the James Mattis vision of how you should work with your allies and how you should approach your alliances and your relationships. Yeah, my my high school classmate, James Madison, back in the day. Go on. James Mattis? Okay. Yeah. You're younger. If you're a baby boomer, you're younger. Um, so, uh, so in any event, we, 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 so she's signaling that, and this comes hard on the heels of last week. I know it seems like it was like, you know, a month ago when the president, uh, went to Hanoi to have a, another summit meeting with a, a world leader and what did Nancy Pelosi do? But she's, she, I mean, essentially she did, although of course it was a committee schedule, but they scheduled Michael Cohen to come right exactly on the day when the president was planning on holding the attention of all the television cameras, you know, the world over because of his meeting with Kim Jong-un, you know, regardless of the fact that it ended up in failure, he wanted certainly more attention. And he was steaming over the fact that the agenda had been wrested from him. The, The PR agenda, the communications agenda had been wrested from him by Nancy Pelosi. So if, if these two kind of data points are a sign of how she's going to a- approach President Trump. I think it's very wise. She's basically saying, "I'm not going to be reactive," and 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 unfortunately, we've seen a lot of reactiveness. Now, of course, the Republicans on the Hill um, they were hard pressed to do much more, given their, um, I guess their their personalities. And well, you've made a lot of points about backbones and all that. 
Um, so they didn't take the initiative against the the president to set a normal agenda, to set maybe even a republic a real Republican agenda. This 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 speaker now is saying, okay, I'm going to set the agenda, and I'm not going to let Trump take the airwaves. And I think that's very healthy. So I think let's look for more of that. Okay, let's look for more of that. Maybe we'll just uh, talk about that a little bit more on the next episode of Deep State Radio. Um, but I actually think we're going to talk about the rest of the world on the next episode of Deep State Radio, and I really encourage you to listen to it. <laughs> if you were a member of Deep State Radio, you'd be able to listen to the next episode right now because you get to listen to everything in real time. And all you have to do is go to deepstateradionetwork.com, sign up, become a member, you get a mug or something fantastic out of it and then you get to listen to everything and you get a whole bunch of other content so i would suggest you do that because it's all going to be very exciting but if you're not a member uh and 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 you've been on the fence about it um all i can say is um you know Corey, tell them that they should be a member <laughs> you should be members right exactly <laughs> what she said so do that join us come back next time uh thank you to Corey. thank you to mika thank you to evelyn thank you to all of you out there in deep state radio land and i want to ask one last thing hey Corey, are you proud of me i didn't mention south florida sex spas once in this episode <laughs> david i am so profoundly grateful that on a morning where I got up at 5.30 a.m. in order to join in the supreme satisfaction of being part of your ball club, that you did not give me the visual that <laughs> any detailed discussion of that was going to provide. Thank you so very much. Sadly, as a fan of uh, my favorite sports team, the, the New England Patriots, uh, it actually does give us an image uh, regarding our ball club, but we're going to skip that altogether. Um, and um, folks, join it. Join. You, said, you have to work that through a little bit there, Robert Kraft fans. But um, uh, join us again on the next episode when we also make an effort not to discuss sex bars in South Florida. Um, bye bye. <laughs> Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find